Wow, what a way to start church. I don't, I don't think we need a sermon today, but we're going to have one anyways. That was a good start, but I think the Lord's got some more that he wants to say. Are we ready to receive it? Awesome. If you were here last week, you know that we started a new series out of the Old Testament. We started a series on the minor prophets, so we're going to continue that today. If you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that message. I taught out of the book of Habakkuk, but I also shared a little bit of vision and some reasons why we're talking about the minor prophets, who the minor prophets are, and what it has to do with us. So I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. But we're going to keep that series going this morning. We're going to go ahead and look at Malachi this morning. So pull out your Bibles, turn to Malachi, pull out something to take notes with. We are a note-taking church. When the Lord speaks, we want to remember what he has to say. So turn to Malachi. I'm going to pray for us one more time before we get started. Father, thank you for what you've already done this morning. Thank you that you have more to do. We pray that you would give us the ears, you would give us the eyes, you would give us the longing for more of you. Whatever you want to say, whatever you want to speak, would you give us the ability to receive? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so last week as we kicked off this series, we talked a little bit about the cycles that the Israelites are going through. We talked, we talked about the cycle that they're going through personally, this thing that God is calling them to in the Minor Prophets, this thing of return, repent, and be restored. But then we also talked about the greater cycle, the bigger cycle that we see in the Old Testament, that we see God and his people continually going through, where the Israelites are raised up, they're made prominent, and then they turn away from God and then they, they have judgment fall on them. We talked about both of those cycles last week, and Malachi is no different. Malachi falls into both of these things. Malachi takes place about 400 years before Jesus, and it's the last book of the Old Testament. It's the last of the minor prophets, and in our Old Testament, it's the very last book. We've, we've seen this throughout the whole Old Testament where God has his prophets. He has his people that he speaks to for the Israelites, for his chosen people. But this is actually the last time that we see him do that before John the Baptist comes to prepare the way for Jesus. So where are we at? Where are we at in this cycle that we've talked about? When we get to Malachi, the, the, the different sections of this cycle seem to be really short at this point. These aren't, they aren't long, they're not prolonged, they're not this big gap between each part of our cycle. 200 years before Malachi, we talked about Habakkuk, he, he had prophesied that the Babylonians were going to come and overtake Israel, and that happened. And the Israelites were in exile. They, they were exiled to this Babylonian kingdom. But now... A hundred years before Malachi, less than a hundred years, they've now come back from, from exile. They're now back in their own land. So the cycle is getting shorter because even in that hundred years, they've just barely been back, but already they've turned away from God again. They're already at that point in the cycle. And this isn't, this isn't a denying that God exists. They're not ignoring him or acting like he isn't there. This is an active rebellion against God. I, th- I think you see, so, so there's another prophet named Nehemiah. Nehemiah, when they came back in, he, he began to restore the city. He helped them rebuild Jerusalem, and, and he brought God's law back to them, but they still turned away. And so I think you can see what's coming. As we get in this pattern, 
They continue to raise up, but they always fall away. And they know, they know the judgment is going to come. They've seen this cycle over and over again. But they continually rebel against God's law. And that's where we're at in Malachi. There's so much happening here. Malachi is packed. It is loaded. And to be completely honest, I didn't want to speak on Malachi this morning. When, when, we, when we felt like the Lord was leading us to these minor prophets, I sat down and I said, okay, Lord, what specifically do you want to say? Where do you specifically want to speak out of? And when I, heard, when I heard Habakkuk, when he highlighted Habakkuk, I was excited and all these things rose up in me. And we talked about a lot of stuff last week. And I felt like I had a lot of clarity and a lot of revelation, and there was all these great things that the Lord wanted to say. But at the same time, he was highlighting Malachi. And when, he, when I felt like he was highlighting Malachi, I said, oh, awesome, but no thank you. I, I don't want to speak on that. I can't do a one-week overview on Malachi. There's five or six really specific sermons in Malachi, and I don't want to preach on any of them. I don't want to talk about tithing. I don't want to talk about divorce. I'm not going to talk about any of those things. But the Lord just kept coming back to Malachi. He just kept saying, I have something really specific to say for this group of people on this morning. And so I'd been praying into it. I was praying into it for a week or so. And I had one day where I had just been spending a lot of time praying and reading and listening. And I said to my wife, I said, okay, I think I finally got some breakthrough on Malachi. She said, really? And I said, yeah, I think I have three minutes of content for a sermon. <laughs> so we're in really good shape this morning. But I got to that point where I realized that it didn't matter what I had in that moment. It didn't matter what I could work up. I don't want to stand up here and come up with really good things for you to hear. If the Lord has something to say, then we want to hear it this morning. And when I got to that, that spot, when I got to that realization, I was actually reminded of my own words from last week. We were talking about Habakkuk, and he was sitting at his watch post, and he was looking out, and he was waiting for the Lord to speak. And I said, I said, there is a time for persistence, and there is a time to sit on the, and wait on the Lord to speak. And when you do that, he will speak. And so that's what I did. I sat, and I waited. And the Lord spoke. And I think he has a very clear, very simple, very specific message for us this morning. Something that he wants to speak over us. So here's the plan. We're going to do a really, really, really quick breakdown of all four chapters of Malachi because we need a little more context than what we already have. But then we're going to hone in on just one really specific thing. And we're just going to listen together to what the Lord wants to speak. Does that sound like a plan? Can we do that this morning? Awesome. So there's four chapters in Malachi, but really Malachi is eight parts. Even though it's four chapters, it's broken into eight parts. So we're going to roll through these really fast. Bear with me. Hang on. We'll get through it. The first part is God saying that he loves Israel and the Israelites doubting that. The second part is God accusing the Israelites of defiling his temple and the Israelites doubting that also. In the third part, God specifically calls out the Israelite men for treachery in the way that they treat their wives. There was a lot of divorce going on, but, but beyond that, the Israelite men were marrying non-Israelite women, and then they were worshiping the gods of their wives. The fourth part of Malachi is the Israelites wondering why there is so much injustice thriving. 
And God promises to send a just messenger that will separate the righteous from the unrighteous. In the fifth part of Malachi, God calls his people to return to him. He specifically points out their pride and points to the way that they've been giving their tithes and offerings as evidence. So if you've done any studies from Dave Ramsey, there's a good chance that you've heard some some teaching out of this part of Malachi. The sixth part of Malachi is people saying that there is no point to serving God. Again, they they know he exists. They, They don't think he's not real. But they're just looking around and they're seeing ungodly people thrive and godly people suffer and they don't see the point anymore. God responds by calling his faithful few to remembrance of him. He gives them this scroll that they can read and look back at what he's done and his character and his promises. And then the seventh part, the seventh part is the start of the conclusion. God points to the time of judgment that is coming. The time that the wicked will be destroyed and the faithful will celebrate. And then Malachi ends with this small little appendage at the end that sort of looks back and ties up the whole Old Testament and then looks ahead to the things to come. So again, I know that's a lot. There's a lot happening in Malachi. There's a lot of things going on, but we're going to go ahead and start right at the beginnings. So would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Malachi chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins... The Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Go ahead and have a seat. Okay, so what's actually going on with Israel here? What's actually going on with the Israelites? They're back in their land but they still have a lot of influence from that Persian nation that that had them in exile, had them captured. They're still heavily influenced by that. They've seen the same cycle that we've been talking about. They've seen it happen over and over and over again. They have all of these words from the prophets of old about a Messiah that is going to come and make things better, but they still haven't seen it. It doesn't seem real at this point. They've just seen the same things over and over and over again, and it doesn't seem worth it anymore. They have no hope. They're completely and utterly hopeless. Have you ever gotten to that point in your life? Have you ever been hopeless in your life? I recently went through a year and a half season of pretty deep depression. And if you, if you were here a couple weeks ago, you heard Karis talk about her season of darkness, and she talked about an event that kind of spurred some of that on, and, and even the physical implications that helped keep her in that season. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that go into that that are seen and unseen when you're in those dark seasons. But for, sure, for her, she had this event that, that kind of kept it going, that was kind of the catalyst for that whole season. But for me, my, my season of darkness and depression was a little bit different. I didn't have that event. I didn't have that one thing that I could point to and say, oh, yeah, that's where that started. That's what happened there. Everything was honestly pretty good circumstantially. 
Things were pretty good on the outside. Things looked pretty good. Certainly, I've gone through seasons in my life of, hard, of hardship, of hard relationships, of illness and, and death and miscarriages and marital struggles and all those different things. I've been through all of them. Sometimes it feels like I've been through all of them at the same time. Even since that point, even since I came out of that season of depression, we've had dramatic things happen in our family. But none of that was taking place at this time. I felt like I just couldn't see hope on the horizon. Sometimes that, that hope is clouded by our circumstances. It's clouded by the things around us. But that wasn't the case. Sometimes it's drugged down where you can't see over the edge by the bad things that are happening. But that wasn't the case either. It was literally just an inability to see hope in the future. We weren't created to just avoid the bad things. We weren't created to long for the absence of bad things. We were created to long after the hope, the fulfillment, the good things. However you want to say it, we were made to strive for the things that make us whole, not just avoid the things that tear us apart. That's the place where I was at. Nothing was hard, but I was lacking that drive, that motivation to strive for those bigger things. I would even say it wasn't a lull in my faith or my relationship with God. I didn't doubt him. He was still speaking to me. I just lacked the capacity for the emotional response that communion with God elicits. I think this is a little bit where the Israelites are coming from. Nothing that bad is happening. They were actually returned from exile. They're back in their city. They haven't hit the judgment part of that cycle yet. Things have been restored. Things are coming back. They don't think that God doesn't exist. They know he exists. He's speaking to them right now. They're even doing some of the things, sort of, that he asked them to do. But yet they're still hopeless. They still haven't seen this Messiah that they've been longing for. They aren't seeing the blessings that they think they deserve. They're completely misguided, but there's still a part of them that has an understanding that there is something bigger out there that they're missing. But they just don't have vision for it. Now, certainly they've progressed a little bit farther and they're now in the active rebellion stage, but they're coming from a place of utter hopelessness. But God comes and he speaks to them in the midst of that hopelessness and he says the same thing to them that he said to me when I was in the midst of my depression. Now, we're gonna have a little bit of a spoiler here. I'm gonna tell you the ending right now. Where, you know, I said at the beginning that I think God has something really specific and really poignant for us to hear this morning. And we're going to go on and we're going to unpack it a little bit. But God wants to speak this over, over us. He has this word for you specifically this morning. And it's the same thing that he said to the Israelites over 2,000 years ago. In verse 2, God says, I have loved you. I have loved you. Let that sink in for a moment. Those are some really powerful words if we think about who they're coming from. 
They're coming from the creator and the perfecter. In Colossians, it says, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. They're coming from the perfect one. Psalm 18 said, as for God, his way is perfect. The Lord's word is flawless. He shields all who take refuge in him. They're coming from the ultimate holy judge. Psalm 50 said, and the heavens proclaim his righteousness for he is a God of justice. They're coming from the one in control, but the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purpose of his heart through all generations. Psalm 33. These words are coming from the perfect truth. Numbers says God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? The God of the universe is saying, I have loved you. That same holy God is speaking it over us this morning. And yet the Israelites, they come back to that response and they say, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? So God takes it a step further. Let's read part of that first passage again. Malachi 1, this time starting in verse 2. I have loved you, said the Lord, but you, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. I know, I know that we want to get hung up on that word hate. I know when we see God loves Jacob and hates Esau. We want to get hung up on that. And there's a whole other sermon in there about God's relationship with Esau and his people, the generations that came from him. But let's remember this morning what our context is. We are reading God talking to the Israelites. He's talking to the descendants of Jacob. So when he uses those strong words about Esau, it is much more about creating a clearer picture of the contrary words that he used for Jacob and Jacob's descendants. So if you recall, God chose Abraham. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac then had twin boys named Esau and Jacob. Esau was actually the older of the two boys. And so in that time, it would be Esau's right to inherit everything that his father had. The oldest male would inherit everything. And that included this blessing that had been passed down from generation to generation. But God chooses Jacob to receive that blessing instead. There's some weird circumstances that go down, and we don't need to get into all that this morning. But the point that God is making to the Israelites when he brings up Jacob and Esau is that even though they, they feel like they haven't done anything, they aren't the ones that actually received that original blessing from God, they feel like it's just this generational thing, the point he's making is that this isn't just heretical happenstance. They didn't just luck into it. If it was just part of the natural order, then Esau's people would be blessed. But instead, they are cursed and in ruin. God specifically chose the Israelites. Two weeks ago, uh, before service, I was out in the lobby with with my boys, and my two older boys, they were playing with their friend Cade. Cade is a nine-year-old in our church, and and they, they often play together, and they were playing together out in the lobby like they always do. It's really common that they're 
running around and, and wrestling around and whatever, being boys. But on this particular morning, my three-year-old was trying really hard to get Cade's attention. He said, Cade, 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 Cade. And finally, finally Cade kind of turned and waited to see what he had to say. And, and Brennan, my three-year-old, he gets up close and he goes, Cade, do you know that my name is Brennan? And, and watching from the outside, I started to laugh. I thought, Brennan, what a ridiculous question. You've known Cade for so long. Cade has heard your name said over and over and over again. He said your name over and over and over again. And I expect Cade to be annoyed and respond with this like, yeah, Brennan, I know your name. I said it seven times in the last 10 minutes. But that's not what Cade did. Cade took a step forward and he kind of got down to Brennan's level and he put his hand on his shoulder. And he looked him right in the eye, and he said, Brennan, I've known you since you were born. <laughs> and my, and my, my first thought was, what kind of response is that from a nine-year-old? <laughs> but, my, but my second thought was, was Malachi. It was this picture of the Israelites in Malachi. When they say, how have you loved us? And from the outside looking in, I think, what a ridiculous question. He's done all these things for you. He brought you out of Egypt. He has rescued you time and time again. And I expect God to be annoyed and say, how have I loved you? Less than 100 years ago, I brought you out of exile. I've done all these things for you. But that's not what God does. He takes a step forward and he bends down and he looks the Israelites in the eyes and he said, I chose you. I chose you. He doesn't go to all of these examples that are all around us that seem so obvious. He goes all the way back to the beginning, and he says, I chose you. So now we haven't even gotten to anything else in Malachi, and we have these two things that God has spoken over the Israelites and that he's speaking over us this morning. I have loved you, and I have chosen you. Now, this second one, I have chosen you, it kind of creates better perspective for the first one. It puts it in better context for us. One of the most well-known Bible verses in the whole world, I'm sure most of you in here have heard it, is John 3.16. It starts out, for God so loved the world. And I think we've been so oversaturated with that verse that we get this picture of this big, distant being holding this little world out in front of him, going, oh, I love that world. But that's not what we're talking about here. I have loved you. I chose you. Ephesians 1.5 said, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. He chose you. 1 John 3.1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. He chose you. Isaiah 41.9, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. He chose you. This isn't some generic love that we lucked into. He looks at you in your situation, in your struggles, in all of your mess, in your sin, in your brokenness. And he says, I have loved you. I chose you. Amen. Now, the more you listen to me, you might start to realize how I've been reading these minor prophets. 
But I come at it with this lens of it's not only important what is being said, but it's also important how it's being said. We looked last week at the importance in Habakkuk and his conversation with God. We talked about God, how God having discussion with a man was pointing us to this picture of Jesus as the ultimate mediator between God and God's people. Well, Malachi is also a back and forth between God and the Israelites, but it isn't written as a conversation like Habakkuk is. The Israelites have questions, concerns, they have things that are brought up, but it's all under one voice. It's all written under God's voice. He says, I declare this, but you ask that. I said that, you respond with this. It's a back and forth, but the prophecy is written under one tone, one speaker. So what does that tell us? Last week, we were asking the question, why did this have to be a conversation? This week, we're asking the question, why isn't this a conversation? I think it's really simple. God is speaking to the Israelites without any prompting from them. He doesn't need a conversation because he knows what they're asking. He knows the areas that they're struggling. He knows the places that they're hurting. He knows the places where they can't even see their own sin. He knows the places that they're falling short. He knows that they're in the midst of hopelessness. And despite the posture of their hearts, he is speaking to those places. And he's speaking to those places in your life as well. In the midst of everything that is happening, in the midst of everything that you're dealing with, the Lord looks at you and he says, I have loved you. I chose you. Now, God is about to come at the Israelites with some things that they really don't want to hear. He's about to speak to them with conviction and rebuke. God also wants to speak with us with conviction and rebuke. But remember these words that we just read. Remember these things that we're highlighting in Malachi. When God speaks the hard things in your life that you don't want to hear, he isn't doing it because he's some harsh God that hates you and wants to leave you crushed and destroyed. He's doing it because he loves you and he chose you and he wants to crush the places in your life that aren't producing hope. Even here in Malachi, we're about to get to the point where God comes at them pretty hard for how they're bringing their offerings. But it's not that they aren't offering something. It's that they aren't bringing the best of what they have. They're bringing the least and the worst of what they can give. And God knows that if they were truly coming from this place of being loved and being chosen, then they wouldn't be able to give anything but the most and the best of what they have. This picture in Malachi isn't just a picture for eternity. It isn't just a picture of salvation. This is a picture of a God that is meeting you right here and right now in the midst of your very real circumstances. He sees it. He knows what you're going through. He knows what you're longing for. He knows what your heart actually needs. And he says, I have loved you. I chose you. Would you stand with me as we close? We're going to have the prayer team come forward and we're going to do one more song.
You can come up and get prayer. You can come up to the altar, do what you need to do. I know that this doesn't seem like the most practical sermon, but there's a response here. Listen to those words. Believe it when the creator speaks those words over you. If you truly do that, then the only thing that you can reasonably do is surrender your whole life to him. Nothing else is an adequate response to the love of the almighty Savior. In the midst of your struggles, in the midst of your hopelessness, in the midst of whatever you're dealing with, turn to the Lord and hear him say, I have loved you. Pray with me as we close. Father, thank you for this love that we don't deserve. Thank you for your very real presence. Thank you that you speak into the midst of whatever we're going through. Thank you that your love is greater and bigger and more sufficient than anything else we could chase. Pour out more of it on us, Lord. Allow us to see you clearer. Allow us to see your love for what it really is. In Jesus' name.